Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And welcome to the uh, New Statesman podcast, now restored to the its... The all-stars, yeah. as I like to think about yeah, it. Yeah, its full roster. Um, how Did you keep it warm for me while I was away? Yeah, we. Um, yeah, people liked it. Some listeners didn't want you to come back. Wow. Well, um, screw them, because I'm here <laughs> and I've got a lot of thoughts about Labour. Um, we've got loads to get through. Shall we, start, shall we start with boundary changes? Because that is the kind of wonkery for which I think um, there is an appetite... So the Boundary Commission has come back with its review to reduce the number of seats from 650 to 600. There's inevitably been a a row about the ones that have been redrawn. So George Osborne's seat is gone. Yeah, George Osborne's seat of Tatton. Jez We Can is now Jez We Are Homeless. Yeah, so, I mean, we always sort of thought that might happen to Islington North. It was the geographically smallest. It's teeny, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's teeny tiny. It has the If it was highest, an island, it'd be all right. Yeah, it has the highest density of, of uh, social housing, which also means it has a large amount of turnover and people moving around. Um, so it was vulnerable to for all sorts of, of reasons, because there are basically two elements of the boundary changes. One which is impeccably fair and weirdly a lot of MPs have decided to criticise that one and then one which is really dodgy right? So it's the kind of classic algorithm thing isn't it? Is that algorithms are themselves neutral but they are programmed by people with bias and that's exactly what's happened here is that the process itself has been scrupulously fair but the terms and conditions it operated under were only ever going to produce a result that was helpful to the Conservatives. Yeah Um, so there's equalising the sizes of, of constituencies unless you're an island which to be honest is, is fair enough. Um, if you were of a voter on the Wirral, your vote counted for literally double that of the vote of someone in, trying to think, one of the largest constituencies, um, the Isle of Wight, which is a bad example, because obviously they will still be unrepresented because they're still an island. What I'm saying is they should dig a moat round Islington North and then it would have survived unchanged. I'm obviously aggrieved by this because in practice, of course, Jeremy will get another seat. It feels likely than what will happen is is that he will get Finsbury Park and Stoke Newington. So the Socialist Republic of Stoke Newington will now move from under the glorious stewardship of Diane Abbott, who's yeah. your current MP. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to upset our Corbynite listeners, but I like Diane Abbott. I like voting for her. I I don't want to vote for Jeremy. <laughs> I, I, I mean, yeah, I'm, she's, she's, you know, yeah, no, I like voting for Diane. I'm really unhappy about this development. I'm also more annoyed because uh, they've then continued eastward 
drawing increasingly ridiculous boundaries. So like Finsbury Park and Stoke Newington, fair enough, that's a place, it's quite a nice name. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably bad news for renters, because my instinct is that is that is a name which is going to increase property prices right there. Finsbury Park and Stoke Newington. Sounds a lot nicer. Sounds very leafy. Yeah. Uh, Hackney North, you know, people are still scared of Hackney. The other day I had to bite my tongue not to turn and... So there was this couple um, clearly going on the world's worst day. And the bearded man said very confidently, oh, Clapton is still pretty, pretty shady. I mean, Clapton is not only not shady now, but even when I was a child, I used to go to violin lessons in Clapton. So the idea that Clapton has ever been, you Bunch know... Much as Snoop Dogg yeah, like, used to in Compton into yeah, his violin lessons. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. It's, it's obviously ridiculous. Hackney Central, fair enough. You know, you can't... Hackney West and Bethnal Green, that's not a place. That goes over a local authority. People, like, it's like, if you're going to do that, call it Shoreditch and Bethnal Green. And that Ooh, is just... That sounds shishy. Yeah, there are lots of, um, of, of big losers. From Caroline the... Lucas is another really interesting one, yeah. right? So Caroline Lucas is an old one. So she's basically, again, we, uh, Brighton Pavilion, small, lot of students. So we kind of suspected uh, that would happen. Uh, now, the odd thing is, Caroline Lucas has talked a lot about an electoral pact. I would back Caroline Lucas to win the new seat, provided there is not an electoral pact with Labour. Because... So let me get this right. So she has suggested that Labour and the Greens don't run against each other. Yeah. But she needs Labour peeling off some of the Tory vote in order that she can come down the middle in the new seat. Yeah, so in 2010, what the Greens did, and they ran a brilliant, a brilliant campaign, and one of my great regrets is if I had, you know, not been, you know... Uh, a mere fetus as it were then I would have loved to cover that campaign because it was a brilliant very clever bit where they worked out exactly what they needed to do to win she got something like 29% of the vote and she came through the middle and I would back her to do that again in the new constituency in terms of the notional results you can kind of see how she'd eat enough of the Labour vote however and this is part of the broader problem with electoral packs. voters don't behave in a wholly rational way we saw this with Lib Dems right so if you are politically informed and you voted Lib Dem at the 2015 election, you mostly voted Labour, right? If you weren't, you were voted Tory. And that was one of the things the polls were picking up too much of. They had too many hyper-informed Lib Dems and not enough less informed Lib Dems who who did not vote in a way which perhaps seems rational. And it's kind of the same with, with Labour voters and electoral packs with the Greens. There are lots of Labour voters, including in Brighton, whose second choice if there's not a Labour candidate is not going to be the Green Party. In some cases it'll be UKIP, in some cases it'll be the Tories. I think that's one of the great curiosities of the last election, and it's a really good lesson for the Lib Dems, or something they certainly need to grapple with, is that you get punished for being in coalition with a party that lots of people dislike by people voting for the party that they apparently dislike over you right yeah. which is doesn't is makes no logical sense on you like i i think it's wrong that the lib dems went into coalition with the tories i'm gonna vote tory well i think their problem is is i think the people who voted tory over the lib dems didn't feel that way the the mistake they made and i but i don't see how they would have survived doing what they need because what they needed to do is basically go you love the coalition so do we coalition's great vote lib dem however doing that would have signed the death warrants of Every Lib Dem MP fighting Labour, every Lib Dem MP in a city. I mean, of course, as it turned out, that <laughs> happened anyway. Yeah. But you can you can see you can see you know if they'd done that, imagine what Vince Cable would have done the day after. Their their problem was is that they were like a you know it was like the dog with two bones. Um, I don't know the story. Go so on. So there's a dog. It's got a bone. It comes to a, a pond. 
Right. And it sees another dog in the pond with a bone. Uh-huh. And it's like, it kind of gives the, the dog a hard stare. And you can give me my bone. And the other dog gives it a hard stare back and gives it another head. So he growls and the other dog growls. And eventually it's like, right, I'm going to show you my bark. It opens its mouth to bark. And the bone drops from its mouth uh-huh. into the pond. And it can't retrieve it because it's... And how does the bone like, what to do with the Lib Dems? And so the Lib Dem, right, so the bone <laughs> right. in, in this case, actually I don't think this works, but, but, but the, the bone was, um, was the, on the one hand you've got Lib Dems who are facing the Tories, right? And what they needed to do, they were actually the bone in the dog's mouth, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah. they needed to do is go, look, I've got this bone. Yeah. The people who are facing the Labour Party, they're underwater. They might not think it, they might get smiled at when they go and open a tombola, but, you know, Lynn Featherstone, she's gone. Yeah. Um, Simon Hughes, gone. What they needed to do is go, right, I'm going to leave that bone in the water. It's not actually a real bone. But instead they went, we'll just bark for a bit. Yeah. And then the bone they actually had fell into the water and was lost. I think you you pulled that back. I pulled that one back, yeah. Let's talk, let's dwell on the Lib Dems a little bit more. Because I think, actually, that there is an opportunity for the Lib Dems now, right? I, I think there is a, a hard ceiling on the potential vote that they get. But... Um, all this sort of, I think the polling puts kind of what they call a metropolitan elite voters at 8%, right? And yeah. not all of those people will go to Corbyn's Labour. Some of them will, yeah. I think definitely. But there are others who are more centrist, but still are really motivated by things like Europe. I think there are more votes to be kind of scrambled up by the Lib Dems, particularly if you think that the May government is, let's face it, probably going to be quite authoritarian, quite illiberal, right? It must have been hard for them to fight against Cameroonian conservatism because, you know, he's the PM who dropped ID cards. Actually, things like the Snoopers Charter never... I mean, he wouldn't... If it had been up to Cameron, right, the Snoopers Charter would never have... Yeah, and I mean, in many ways, one of... I would say the great tragedy, and then I remember that we've left the EU. (laughs) One of the the great tragedies of Cameron's premiership uh, was that he did not give voice to his natural instincts on, for example, uh, drug reform, which, you know, actually, even if it what happened with the EU, that, that would that would cast his legacy in a very different light. Yeah, um, or if they started doing prison reform, like, more than 10 minutes before. Yeah, and prison reform, that is gone. That is hold below the waterline. Um, which I think is really sad, right? I mean, I'm in the middle of writing up a piece about, about prisons, having been to some earlier in the summer, but there was a sort of sense of... I wouldn't say excitement, because I think people have seen promises and made and then junked in the kind of cold glare of tabloid headlines before about prison reform. But I actually think that that was, it was not, it was so not a replica of the the, the resistance of the schools and teachers and the education establishment to Michael Gove's school reforms, right? I think actually there was a sense in, uh, in the prison sector that more autonomy for governors particularly was exactly what they needed and actually yeah. that would have for example allowed them a lot more control over things like outsourcing contracts which have been kind of pretty much imposed on them and actually for a really long time with very hard penalties for break clauses that mean you end up just paying huge amounts of money to people who aren't delivering a great service with no way to hold them to account so i i'm sad about prison reform yeah and i think that's part of um theresa may kind of viewing the ministry of justice effectively as a you know one minister has said to me she views it as a rogue outpost of the Home Office, and she always has done. Well, but, you know, that's, it, it's spun off. I mean, ironically, though, when we, you and I have had this conversation before, it does that. Does her survival as Home Secretary, is that down to the fact that she wasn't responsible for all the things that Department of Justice were responsible for, which traditionally may have sunk previous Home Secretaries? Well, one very interesting you ask us, which I think is so interesting that we should actually do it as a written blog, is, yeah. is, is Theresa May good or lucky? 
Um, hmm, that's a really interesting um, question. Because it is, yeah, the, it, and that is one of the many questions, but just that, the having is a bet on, has her shadow, you know. The trouble is on like, terror stuff, it's almost impossible to say, because you hear about the thwarted plans two years later when they finally get to a terror trial at the Old Bailey, right? Yeah. There's no real-time way of assessing actually wh- how the Home Secretary made those made those calls when they were actually happening. Yeah. Um, let's quickly talk about grammar schools which grammar is kind of also kind of plays into the fact that it just feels to me like Theresa May has decided to laser target a particular group of voters and I would think of them mostly as sort of soft UKIP voters in the home counties I mean she's come up with I, I find it I, I have to say I find it strange that at grammar schools was the first thing that she decided to do I mean you know it's sort of a weird, not only is it a big sort of screw you to Cameron it's kind of slightly screw you to Thatcher yeah. uh, and and it's certainly a big screw you to the 80% of teachers, I think, who are against them. And actually, not just... I know we have, there's a perception that all teachers are sort of raving NUT lefties, but actually there's... You know, it's well, it's, a, it's opposed to Michael Gove's Well, a plurality of legacy. teachers did still vote for the Conservatives in the 2015 election. Yeah, it, it is, um, as they say in Christmas, it's a bold move. Courageous. Because, um, I mean, the slight difficulty is is... You know, you sometimes have to use the word educational establishment because it, there's no other shorthand, but there isn't really one apart from on issues like grammar schools, which actually do unite everyone who's into education policy from kind of the NUT all the way through to yeah, it's like the Avengers heads of Assembly. most major yeah, yeah. academies. Avengers Assembly, that's the school version of Avengers but Assemble. I think one of the things I find intriguing about it is, it's so obviously they're briefing very hard there won't be an election. But you think, how are you going to get that through the laws? You think you're going to have opposition from the founders of academy chains, many of whom now have peerages. Um, it just feels like it only makes sense as an election issue because... But also I can see the roots of... I mean, one of the reasons you might say that David Cameron stepped down as an MP was so that he would never have to vote on that. Like, how do you vote yeah. on someone who's obviously dismantling a legacy? How does George Osborne vote on that? Michael Gove surprisingly has said that he will vote for grammar schools, which is a kind of who well, who knows who knows what crazy, that crazy what? guy's up to. Nikki Morgan said she's against it. There was another Tory MP who stood up in the chamber. Uh, Alex Shellbrooks yeah, was against it. Your twelve majority begins to look quite. I mean, and at the, that point, because my assumption is, and I actually should ask him, but my assumption is Graham Stewart will be against it because he is always. You know, had religion on this idea of no, you know, there's because the 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 really, I mean, there are one the statistics are against against grammar schools, and I I say that as someone who you know went to a comprehensive. Before well, you're the only stopped. person. Hang on a minute, but how good was your comprehensive? Because if your comprehensive was too good, I now learn that you're not allowed to have an opinion. You're not on allowed. This. To, I mean, it was in London, so obviously you know that that discredits me because it's you know that London. Yeah. Uh, and you know it did get it was rated good by Ofsted when I was there. It's now Sorry. outstanding. So I guess that. But you know that it, proves that comprehensives don't work. It did. But I mean, like the whole point of the agenda in education reform, and obviously there was some sharp changes when when the Conservatives came came in. But from Blunkett to to Nicky Morgan, the whole point was you didn't accept, quite rightly, this idea that there was a large number of pupils where it was acceptable to throw your hands in the air and go, oh, what can we do? They're poor. Um, And that is effectively the argument about grammar schools. So what can we do? Some people are just thick. And, you know, ultimately, you know, without wishing to alienate like hundreds of my sources, like every law firm, civil service department and bank is full of upper middle class people who, to be frank, you know, they're perfectly nice people, but they're not the sharpest people in the world. They've just had social advantages and there is absolutely no excuse for an education system which can't turn even the most unremarkable child 
into a middle manager in a bank or a, depart a mid-ranking departmental official uh, in the treasury or whatever. If you're someone who's given me a story who's a mid-ranking official, I am not talking about <laughs> you. You are very clever. Um, um, yeah, I, that's why. I mean, I, I think they're more pernicious generally than uh, than private schools, which lots of people on the left are. Because private schools say, you know, other people have more money than you. Um, but grammar schools say at 11 other people are more intelligent than you and you're the you're the detritus and also they don't take resource out of the the system you know people so you know i you know people still pay their taxes state schools can and do uh, drive them out of business i mean like to be honest in london mostly now if you're sending your kids to private school i mean you might as well have burned that money. Uh, you know, you, you, the, the output is just not, you know, kind of, it's one of those things where... Well, you just don't want them ever to have to talk to a poor person. I think yeah. that's basically... I mean, that thing is, like, so they, they have become more sinister in a way, particularly in London, where it's like, well, what are you really paying for here? Facilities, though, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I knew somebody who went to private school that had a shooting range. I mean, you don't get, I mean, maybe, maybe in the hood. Well, in, in bits the, of Hackney, yeah, <laughs> in we the still hood have of Hackney, that. Um, you do have that. But yeah, I mean, that, I think that's something that... Anyway, I'm, I'm, I went to private school, so I'm definitely not... Which is a choice that I made at the age of three, actually. Um, I was I was very precocious. That's probably why I've done so well in life. Um, <laughs> that's probably enough of that. What do you think of the photo of the new cabinet, just to finish? Um, I mean, I hadn't realised just how many white, bold men there were in that. Like, <laughs> just... The Russian doll set that starts but... with Chris Grayling and yeah. then like works its way down to kind of... Yeah, I know. It's Yeah, it's... I, 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 yeah, I, I did the whiteness was the first thing that kind of came to me. And the fact that men in politics need to just break the hegemony of the navy suit. You know, live a little, guys. Maybe maybe a discreet check. You know, just yeah. get there. In the well, think, yeah, even if someone was wearing steel grey in that, you'd be like, who's that dynamic go-getter? Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I, yeah, it was, it was, it's an interesting... I mean, obviously, it's it's much more diverse in educational terms. I think, what is it, 70% state-educated? Yeah. So it's... But, it, I mean, yeah, a kind of cruel reminder that there are many way, different ways to slice diversity. But I that. think one of the interesting things for a final, final thought, about the new cabinet, indeed about the new government, is it is basically the Conservative Party under May is a coalition of um, lower middle class people who've done well for themselves, whose political mission is to make lower middle class people do well for themselves and to protect people who have done well for themselves. They are not concerned about the power of an overmighty rich to rig the system all that much. And they are not particularly concerned about the condition of the poor, which is fairly depressing for policy terms. But the scary thing is, electorally, the it's coalition kind of... of people who either want to be or are lower middle class or want to have done well from themselves from being lower middle class, that is very potent. And so it's, you know, it is fairly scary. <laughs> Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And together we host the New Statesman's pop culture podcast, Seriously. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can get this episode and everything else we've done on newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. And now it's time to go down the line to the lobby with George. Hi, Stephen. Hi, George. So yesterday at Prime Minister's Questions, Jeremy Corbyn had the rare experience of being almost universally declared the winner by um, by the uh, Westminster Press and uh, and and probably in the view of most most MPs. Um, a week later than most Labour MPs thought he should have done, he went on grammar schools and Theresa May struggled. She struggled to explain why the new schools were needed. Um, 
she played the the personal card saying uh, you went to a grammar school, I went to a grammar school, they're why we're here today. But Corbyn wasn't thrown off course. He said he, he clearly knows his views on this issue. A selection at 11 is, is fundamentally wrong. And it's not, we don't just need a ladder for some children. We need a ladder for all. And the Labour benches uh, visibly united around him. There were even, even, the, even cheers heard. And it showed how Theresa May's decision to open this classic left-right dividing line has reminded uh, some of Corbyn's friends and foes why they're in the same party. Yeah, um, so that was obviously a, a, a big win, which, you know, we all expect. I feel now even uh, Owen Smith's supporters are no longer actively trying to convince one that he is going to win. Absolutely. Everyone's mind has turned to what happens when Corbyn wins, not not if he'll win. And as you say, although there are some who are who are holding out, who say we are not going to serve under him in any circumstances, we'd look absurd if we did, having voted no confidence in him. Uh, we don't just think he's uh, unelectable. We also think he's a, he's a bad man. There are others who take the view, as some did originally, we have to try and make this work. Um, we have to look like a reasonably competent opposition. And actually, on economic and social issues, uh, grammar schools among them, uh, further spending cuts, uh, rail, housing, there's actually quite a lot that the Corbynites and their opponents have in common. Yeah. Then, of course, in the evening, something happened which reminded people of the things that divide them. What there was this list published, this enemies list, effectively. That's right. So there was a list of 13 Labour MPs, including Tom Watson, Jess Phillips, Tristram Hunt, um, issued by Corbyn's campaign team. And they were attacked for their abuse of uh, Corbyn and his supporters. So they cited Jess Phillips telling Diane Abbott to, to F off, Tom Watson calling Momentum a rabble. And... Uh, it was accompanied by a quote from a spokesman saying Owen Smith must disown these MPs and, and condemn them. Um, then I spoke to a senior Corbyn ally who told me this has caused anger and dismay among Jeremy's supporters at Westminster. Uh, he said it was the work of a pound shop, Malcolm Tucker. And he said this is the height of incompetence from the leadership campaign team. I then subsequently spoke to um, a figure from the campaign team who blamed it on a, on a junior staffer and said it wasn't intended for, for official use. And of course, this excuse was roundly mocked by the MPs and uh, the fallout continues. Um, one of those names on the list, Ben Bradshaw, has written a letter of complaint to Jeremy Corbyn and a formal letter of complaint to Labour's chief whip, uh, to the Parliamentary Labour Party chair and to the general secretary. But as you say, the, the bigger point here is how Jeremy Corbyn often seems torn between the path of cooperating with MPs and the path of confrontation, as it should be said, uh, his opponents often are. Um, and it was slightly awkward last night when, after Jeremy Corbyn's campaign had distanced themselves from the list and said it's just the work of a junior staffer, uh, Corbyn then uh, defended the list in his, his debate with Owen Smith and said, look, all of these comments are, are on the record already and pretty much I don't, I don't see what the fuss is about. I think the odd thing is, is it makes sense, I think, in terms of getting the show on the road to effectively draw a line and go right we'll be conciliatory but beyond this line no 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 the problem is is for that to work the people on the other side of the line have to be um 
punished in some way. Ben Bradshaw is very popular both in Exeter and in his his local party, so they're not going to be able to deselect him. Ditto um, Jess Phillips. Whereas Tristram Hunt, Jamie Reed, who has a tricky selection battle for the new seat of Workington and Whitehaven, uh, John Woodcock, they are... Tom Blankensop, they are more intelligent targets, I think. Yes. Uh, and I think having that list is probably... It feels like the last leaked list, where it's just like the ineptitude as much as the sectarianism is the problem. Yes, I think, I think, I think that's right. And the frustration for Jeremy Corbyn's supporters at Westminster was that they felt this immediately distracted from the win he'd had at PMQs. And it allows the Tories to say... Uh, just look at how disunited the Labour Party is. You know, you you may have noticed our our divisions on grammar schools, but they're nothing compared to um, a party at war with itself. And the internal politics of this are quite interesting because there's uh, been strong speculation that members of the campaign team uh, will make the transition to the leader's office after Corbyn's likely re-election. And this here is... Team Corbyn at Westminster saying, look, if they're going to uh, display incompetence of this kind, then uh, then we really don't need them here. Um, to which I'm, I'm sure some of them would reply, well, the, but the first year didn't exactly go swimmingly at all times. Um, but the bigger point here is, of course, that um, none of this will make a, a difference at all to, to the outcome of, of, of the leadership election. And that was a card that um, Owen Smith intended to use and has used throughout the campaign that i am i am more competent only i can can unite the party and he did point he pointed to the list last night and said look this is effectively a deselection list you're you're giving momentum and others a hit list of mps you want to get rid of um and it, it's fair to say corbyn survived that blow right and we like corbyn will be back next week This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hi, I'm Stephanie. And I'm John. And we host Skylines, a city metric podcast where every two weeks we talk about cities, maps and the human world. Whether the Olympics are good for cities, what it's like to be a woman in a city. And we've had guests like Lauren Elkin, Caroline Criado-Perez. And Neil Codlin, the key wall player from Suede, because I'm nearly cool now. Tune in on iTunes or on Acast. Check it out. And now we're joined by Kirsty Styles, who is the head of NS Tech, to talk about Snowden, whistleblowing, leaks, hacks, and, well, yeah, pretty much um, everything. There's a film coming out. It's Oliver Stone, isn't it? The, the, the director of the Snowden film. And it's got the one, the guy from Third Rock from the Sun, as I will always think of him, as uh, as, as Edward Snowden. Can we just talk a bit, because you interviewed Sarah Harrison, who's been involved with efforts to kind of, well, she was with him in Hong Kong, wasn't she, for like six weeks, and then she helped him get to Russia. Um how yeah how tense was that period for him so well how tense was it for him uh, so i well i didn't get to speak to him myself but obviously speaking to sarah she was there in the hotel room uh, she um uh, was there with him in the airport um when they finally made it to moscow and um she'd actually only become involved at a very very late stage he was already in hong kong he'd already uh, gone to glenn greenwald and other journalists and he kind of resided himself to the fact that he was either going to get killed or he was going to go to prison he actually didn't have a plan b and while they were there maybe it was the journalists that had uh, kind of said it to him but they were like maybe you should think about your exit strategy you know this you know 
let's try and see if we can find another way of you, um, well, not dying. Uh, and so Sarah was over in Australia and she'd actually gone there via Hong Kong. And so coincidentally, she was actually able to get to Hong Kong really quickly um, and um, without being in plain sight and start working with him using the WikiLeaks team uh, where she still works um, to, uh, you know, find out exactly uh, how they might get out of there um, and who they might get help from. Yeah, I think whatever you think about the the newsworthiness of the leak, and I do think there was newsworthy stuff in there, perhaps not quite so much as some of the embassy cables from WikiLeaks a couple of years ago. It wasn't incredibly... Having seen what happened to Chelsea Manning, I think he's currently on hunger strike, um, you know, who's just been, there's finally suggestions that she might get sex reassignment surgery, which would be the first person in US custody to get that. But, you know, knowing, going into that situation, knowing that you have these medical needs and that, you know, you're going to be, I mean, she was in solitary confinement for a really long time. That was a pretty big step for someone like Snowden to make, right? So from his, uh, from what I've seen from uh, previous documentary System 4 and, um, you know, uh, the many interviews that we've seen with him, I saw him speaking at Future Fest, Nestor's Future Fest last year. This wasn't a, um, you know, I am a revolutionary or a freedom fighter type Cough decision. Julian Assange. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was, you know, a guy who worked um, in the job that he did. Um, because he was a patriot and he cared about his country. Uh, and that's the same thing that you would see with Chelsea Manning and the same thing you'd see with Bill Binney, who's another uh, whistleblower who used to work at the NSA. Um, these people weren't doing this because they want to, um, you know, uh, rip up the script. They want uh, you, the US to be the country that it says that it is, um, you know, uh, the, the, a beacon uh, of democracy and freedom uh, to live up to its values. And they just saw hypocrisy. And um, so his decision was, you know, I want to help the US reform um and to be the country that it, it wants to be and so that how, was his decision how um how big an impact did this did the snowden files have so i think there's certainly still stuff uh, coming out about it people um have asked him whether he was um behind the panama papers and he says that he would protect a whistleblower if they wanted him to but he said in this case uh, he would not take uh, credit for that um it's all the stuff well <laughs> it's kind of it echoes and echoes and echoes um we we know that the us and uh, the uk government and you know even governments like germany have had a mass spying programs that um up until this point were not codified not, not necessarily um uh, you know legal under any law that exists yet uh, and um so that's the that's what we found out the the, the it's kind of interesting to know that as citizens but also I think the, the problem for me is what can I actually do about that as an individual you're like great okay I know that they're spying on me I know that they have the capacity to spy on me um but you know uh, how, how do I if I don't want to be spied on stop that from happening and that's that's not clear hmm. Stephen what was the political fallout like from from Snowden because it was um, I, I think it sort of fell into an unfortunate time when Labour was still not you know, we're still in their transitional period from, I guess, Blairite authoritarianism to kind of Corbynite ultra, you know, transparency. and Yeah, and it was also in that weird time when the government kind of had its weird internal libertarian opposition, but it couldn't really express itself very much because they had Theresa May at the home office. I mean, my feeling is it hasn't actually changed the political conversation around surveillance in terms of Westminster and Whitehall all that much, not least because... What they've effectively opted to do is go, okay, it's not legal, well, we will retroactively make it legal. It will have more of a, an impact in the states because they have a written constitution and ignoring how um, relaxed or unrelaxed you are about surveillance, it is very clear that you cannot make what they're doing constitutionally overnight in the way you can just go, right, Snoopers Charter, 
Okay, thanks, bye. The interesting question about those leaks is whether or not they can put survive politically the fact that WikiLeaks has effectively become a partisan actor in the US election. Yeah. Um, well, let's yeah, let's talk about that because I mean, I, I you know I've had problems with Julian Assange for for many years, but I think that this last couple of months had the, it had I mean as an as a sort of organisation, it has taken a particularly sharp well a, an avowedly partisan anti Clinton, um, and I think that pro- some of the leaks that it has promulgated have been have fairly heavy Russian fingerprints over them, right? Which is another part of the. The Snowden saga, and I think he's been quite brave in saying he did a lunch with the FT with Alan Rusbridger, you know, about criticising human rights abuses um, in, in Russia and criticising some of Russia's actions, which when he is alive or, you know, and at liberty, such as he is at liberty, only thanks to the sheltering of the Russian government is, is, is quite a courageous thing to do. Yeah, I think a lot of the, well, so, so part of the challenge was there, you know, uh, uh, Ed and Sarah are in Hong Kong. They are trying to work out what to do next. And so they are calling around as, as much as you call around all of the countries in the world and say, you know, would you take us? Um, and um, by a kind of fluke of um, actually Hong Kong um, bureaucracy, the US had sent over a document uh, asking for it, uh, Ed Snowden's extradition. They'd spelt his middle name wrong. And Hong Kong were like, we are meticulous copy. Uh, we are meticulous um, fillers in of documents. And so that actually bought some time for Ed and uh, Sarah to go go uh, to Moscow, but they already had plans to then go on to Cuba and then go on to Ecuador. Uh, the US retaliated while they were in the air and just cancelled his passport so he could not get his next boarding pass. And so by virtue of the fact that he that's where he was, that's where he stayed. And it was only after a few weeks, 40 days in the airport that they that they decided, OK, so we're going to have to stay in Russia. And that really, really wasn't uh, their first choice because obviously it has a lot of implications. Since then, it's been he's been accused of being um, a Russian spy. Um, so it really wasn't without its um, challenges. But actually, physically speaking, if you want to be as far away from the US being able to get you as possible, um, you know, Russia is actually a great place to be. And obviously the challenge with Julian Assange is that he has, um, you know, since uh, all of the WikiLeaks um, revelations uh, or his involvement with WikiLeaks, um, he has um, been accused of sex uh, sex crimes in, in Sweden. Uh, whether he has, well, he has charges to answer, but that has not been, um, uh, as Sarah Harrison would see it, um, you know, politically neutral. It, it's not just been that he has to go and answer that. It seems like people have been messing around in the background, you know, kind of um, inflating it and doing PR around it as and when it suits them. Um, so th- these guys have challenges because, you know, the public perception is, you know, are they a freedom fighter? Are they a criminal? Um, if they are a hacker, is it that they are climbing over walls that they shouldn't? Or are they exposing um, uh, problems with systems that need to be changed? Uh, and so then adding in all of these kind of Russia and sex charges and stuff like that um, doesn't help any of their cases. And I guess it's still... Do we objectively think that people like Julian Assange and Ed Snowden and Chelsea Manning and Bill Binney have done something positive, um, even if their characters may not always be infallible? I think there's a big difference between um, those four people in that only one of them is cheerleading for someone who thinks that the problem with America is there are too many people who look like me in it. Like, yeah, I mean, ultimately, that, that is the way that WikiLeaks is behaving in the presidential election. You had a targeted data leak designed to disrupt uh, the Democratic Convention, speculation over Hillary Clinton's health, 
Um, yeah, he did. There was a. Yeah. I say he did a tweet. I mean, we have to maintain this pretense that the WikiLeaks Twitter account isn't just Julian Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy about you know this mysterious object fell out of Hillary Clinton's hand when she was bundled into the car, and then they did a poll about like you know does she secretly have allergies or MS or Parkinson's? I mean, they've gone pretty far down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole, and I think that's a really interesting lesson for Snowden because I actually think he's seen that and he's kept himself very non-partisan and not made interventions or not even tied it into any kind of larger worldview or like or or even kind of anti-imperialist worldview right he's just said like this is my thing i talk about open um access to information and i think that's probably a lesson for the whistleblower of of the future if you want to be taken seriously and maintain your credibility you know edward snowden's still getting invited to big to to nesta conferences right whereas the only people who want to troll other people now invite julian assange to stuff um a question both of you actually it might be interesting the dnc leaks is is interesting so this is the, all the whole tranche of stuff from the um, democratic national committee's servers I, I was looking at um the there's a political history it's an oral history of 9-11 and you've got um bush is stuck on air force one basically and they've got two phone lines in and out and no one's because it's 2001 no one's got a smartphone mm. and they kind of you know they just can't get any information on and off it they're like they're kind of flying over places and getting a bit of a flickery tv signal but one of the things that kind of constantly comes up is actually how much of government communications now do people try and not do through official channels you know there's this whole thing about whether or not people were using gchat because it wasn't foiable were they using private email addresses you know the same thing well the thing that hillary clinton's been accused of is using a kind of essentially home email for work purposes we know for a long time, you know, Osama bin Laden didn't have a phone, right? It's because he just assumed that it that anything digital was trackable. How much of stuff like this changed how governments approach IT and IT security? I mean, so uh, perhaps slightly more broadly, we have seen massive um, moves over the last uh, couple of years towards open data. The Open Data Institute is uh, was co-founded by Sir Tim Berners-Lee, the, one of the kind of fathers of the internet. And um, I've, um, in the last couple of weeks, met an awful lot of open data leaders from, from Kenya, um, from uh, Colombia, um, and all over the world. So the, uh, the general movement towards the idea that um, it is public data, it is not yours, um, and um, actually sharing it will mean that we have better better institutions and better companies that can build on that kind of data, I think is just a really exciting change. And um, it's a real shift in the mindset for a lot of people in government, whether you're a civil servant or, or, or a politician. Um, but, um, you know, if, if, if we don't have anything to hide and you can track my communications all day long, then, you know, right back at you. <laughs> yeah, I think the I think the stuff about phone tracking is. I mean, when the Guardian were working on the the Snowden stuff, they you know they they had a room which no one was allowed to walk with a mobile phone because you're it's very easy to get malware onto a phone right that just turns on the microphone the entire time. You know, essentially, then what's what's really nice about modern surveillance is you carry around your own bugging equipment with you. Like, you yeah, <laughs> I think the interesting thing is so there's a kind of phenomena I'm increasingly obsessed with, which is that it feels that whenever there's a jump forward in technology all of the assumptions people had about things you needed to regulate, people are like, oh, look at this app, of which Uber, TaskRap, they are Deliveroo, they are all kind of the classic example, but in the way the original one is the Match Girls, right? There were already stricter labour laws surrounding children if they were on a farm. Then the Industrial Revolution happened and people were like, do we need those regulations in cities and around factories? They're disruptive. And of course you have that again with Uber, where suddenly people go, oh, that doesn't matter. And it is interesting how when, you know, when freedom of information first started to be talked about in the 70s and when it was finally enacted in 1997, this idea that you'd have a situation where the Secretary of State for Education, 
I think I am correct in saying that it is now accepted that they were using another email address to get round yeah, Mrs. Blurt, Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things, I wasn't sure if that is something we, we, we all know, or it's something that we... Uh, it's, it's on the podcast, we'll be okay. Um, but, um, yeah, it's been accepted, yeah, we, we people wouldn't have expected that. And as ever, legislation in the civil service massively moves behind and kind of like, oh, new technology. It'll be interesting, because one of the other purges that happened under May was all of the people who were into digital stuff in a big way, other than Matt Hancock, got sacked. Mm. Um, all of the people who are like, no, you know, you got, you know, there are certain things that you ought to guarantee with a government IT contract, for example, have either been fired or their pull on Whitehall is much weaker than it was. Yeah. So, well, this, the same thing happens yeah. with, with AI. I was talking to an AI researcher who said, you know, this is a really interesting area, but um, you know, Tom Watson's been trying to set up a royal commission. Think of a great industry. Think of the airline industry, right? That is a, a high-tech industry that is incredibly tightly regulated. And as a result, it is incredibly safe. And actually, prices aren't. It's not. There are. It is. It's perfectly. You know, there, there is no capitalist constraint on running airlines. Lots of people yeah. do, right? But the EU's got very banned certain airlines from flying into the EU because otherwise you will fall out of the sky and die. And and the same thing ought to happen with with AI. Maybe the same thing ought to happen with surveillance. But as you say, it just takes a really long time to catch up. I think one of the most, the most interesting things for me is, I mean, if we, we talk about it as being big data, uh, what Bill Binney from the NSA has talked about consistently in his uh, revelations, and he also has a new film coming out, a documentary called A Good American, which is coming out a week after the Snowden one, um, is that all of this uh, data is too much for, for spooks to go through. Uh, when they talk about um, uh, what's in the Investigatory Powers Bill, um, you know... It's bulk it, collection, Yeah, bulk it? collection and internet connection records, which aren't actually a, a technically defined thing. Um, you know, if you put that on the desk of a of an analyst at the NSA or or at um GCHQ, there's too much stuff to go through. And so what Bill Binney and his team uh, in their kind of skunk works, as they call it, little startup within the NSA created was something that not only mapped every kind of uh, internet connection in the world, but then was able to discard all the ones that weren't um, people of interest and pe- people related to people of interest, because that actually gave them targeted an opportunity to target the right people, whereas otherwise you're just flooding people with information that they don't need. And, and um, you know, the, the investigatory powers bill is currently going through the House of Lords and the level of technical expertise of those people, while they may, might well be lawyers and they might well be, you know, have all sorts of other expertise, these people aren't telecoms people, they aren't, they aren't technology people, but the likes of Apple and uh, Microsoft and Facebook and Google have all come out and said, you know, this is, this is technically the wrong thing to do. And that's, that's backed up by, by uh, Bill Binney and other uh, people working in the surveillance community as well. It's just too much big data uh, because we all have our little spy, spy machines on us. Um, but, you know, Helen is not necessarily thinking of doing anything wrong, Stephen and me. And, you know, so why? Um, why I'd just why? like to make that very clear. I'm really not. But I think that's <laughs> no, but you're right. Because very, very often when there, there is a terrorist attack, you find out that actually the person's been known to the the security services, right? And it's just this cruel fact, which is that the resources are limited. You can't trail everybody around for years on end, twenty four hours a day, because you think that they might do something. Like that, you can you can try and make it as smart as possible, but actually, quite often the security services know who they think the bad guys are. It's just they can't. There's no minority report. They can't swoop on them before they do something. Um, but thanks so much for joining us, Kirsty. We know that, unfortunately, this will be your first and last appearance on the NS Podcast as you are off to exciting new pastures. But um, thanks for joining us. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks so much for having me. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And now for a section called You Ask Us, in which you ask us questions. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. I was saying you can find us on Facebook. You can't find me on Facebook. You can, find oh, you us can on... find me on Facebook. Have you got a verified got, page now? I've got, uh, it's not verified, a fan but I have, page. I have got a page. Okay, well, um, find Stephen's fan page and maybe leave some you know, fan art on there. Maybe some fan fiction. Um, uh, find me on Twitter at, at Helen Lewis. Um, my, it's a very quick one this week. Can Trump win and how? So, Trump can win. Um, I, I would say... At the start of the contest, Trump had about a twenty percent chance of winning. Um, I think one of the difficulties with probability with predicting stuff isn't we're quite good at judging kind of ten percent calls, ninety percent calls. People find it hard to get their head round the level of uncertainty around someone with a twenty thirty percent chance of winning, right? Yeah, and also through the America's crazy electoral college system, where if just you know the people of Ohio go mental, then that and just vote in a completely unpredictable way, then that throws the whole thing into confusion right? so yeah the, so the, the way trump uh wins would yeah his path to victory is basically he is normalized enough in the minds of republican loyalists that despite their relative distaste for him which is clearly declining in some you know he gets all of those votes plus it turns out that the dream of what it's now fashionable to call the old right but are effectively just white supremacists in in new money um yeah, their dream isn't you maximise the white vote and you get uh, middle class whites and white graduates in the north to vote in the way that the white working class in the south have voted. And that, with their new hires, is a big part of their appeal. Um, and that's basically his path to victory, uh, coupled with the fact that obviously Hillary Clinton is not very popular. And so you hope that there will be a lack of enthusiasm for her among the Democratic coalition. My instinct, however, is that that won't happen. <laughs> That's what I want to hear, a Cassandra um, of, uh, of politics. I keep I therapeutically going and looking at 538's Polls Plus, which has currently got Trump, I think, on about un- on just under 20% chance of winning. I mean, he, he has to make some big, big gains in some states where he's not doing particularly well i'm i have i think i I think i'm really quite interested to know what his money situation is like what his ground organization situation is like i mean he always boasts he didn't have to do any advertising he was his own free advertising but the thing is going on fox news and saying outrageous things great really max out that fox news viewership right but it's not necessarily reaching swing voters but also i think so there's a weird thing in the caucus elections are less representative than primary elections because people with the time to go to them are not representative. It's one reason, you know, don't, don't write in Sanders fans, but it's one reason why uh, Bernie did so well in caucus states. And we could see that in the places which had a caucus and then a non-binding primary. Mm. Then Hillary did better. And I think in one case actually won the the alternative primary. It's why they did that that deal with, uh, with the Nevada unions to let people off work so they could vote for her, which is how she won Nevada. Um, but caucuses also are a test of your organisation, right? If Bernie Sanders hadn't had a fairly well-organised campaign, uh, the fact that he only appealed to 
mostly to white voters and some black millennials, but not all, um, would, he wouldn't have been enough for him. Well, the reason why Trump lost almost every caucus state to Ted Cruz is because he wasn't organised. You cannot win caucuses unless you have a good organisation. And it's quite difficult to get your voters to turn out without good organisation. I'm always sceptical of people whose plan is, well, we will, we will activate non-voters, right? Because as the referendum showed, as Obama getting turnout up showed, actually as the massive spike in turnout um, in Lips Scotland after the referendum. Yeah, that thing is, it, it, it is, it, you know, every, everyone's turnout goes up, right? More young people voted in the referendum than have voted in any election in British history ever. But unfortunately, even more old people voted than have voted in any other election ever. More working class folk, people voted uh, in um, the referendum than ever have, but more middle class people did. And so I cannot see a situation in which Trump is able to come up with a message and it sufficiently appeals to enough white voters that you do not then get remarkable turnout spikes among I mean, Hispanic Hispanics voters. and and um, I can't imagine his Muslim vote is is low yeah and also the more worrying sign for them is and state by state polls are less reliable this far out but he's doing really badly among graduates in places like Georgia among young and it may be that actually his long-term effect is to create a permanent halitosis around the Republican brand. There was the slight nerviness of, of Hillary's stumble. The clips looked bad. I myself did have a palpitation of like, oh God, is this the clip on a documentary about the rise of the rise of Trump? Uh, but I, my instinct is, the more I think about it, is there a demographic of people who are worried about fitness to become president whose natural second home after Hillary stumbles is Donald Trump. I think that would make more sense if Tim Kaine didn't look quite boring and quite... Accept- I mean, in yeah. a sense, Tim Kaine is more acceptable. To people who are worried about Hillary, he's more religious, he's a bloke, yeah. which, you know, which helps. And, and, and he's not got a, a long history of, uh, you know, for people who dislike the Clintons historically, he's not got any kind of baggage like that. So that's that's one of my rays, in, you know, my tiny rays of hope is that I don't think the prospect of... Well, and then, you know... And I mean, there's lots of Bernie Sanders fans getting very excited on Facebook about like, oh, they're going to draft Bernie Sanders in because, you know, Facebook is now the primary home for people posting links to fake news sites. The one thing I think you said that I think is really important is about the idea of normalising Trump. And I'm really worried about that. And I think the media has got a really big case to answer there. The natural tendency of the media to for, to let people get into a post-gaff wonderland, right, Where which you saw happen with Boris, you saw happen with Nigel Farage. Um, where that's just what they do, yeah. and they're because they're still popular after doing it. We can't we can't say as Hillary tried to say. Well, actually, the reason that his racist message is appealing to people is because those people are clearly racist or like mm. hold hold racist views. Because you can't say that. You just have to sort of then make it. Oh well, okay, that's now of course. Yeah, of course, it's perfectly legitimate for a main party candidate to call for a wall to be built along the Mexican yeah. border or call for all Muslims to be banned from. Tra- you know, because it's a kind of a, a fait accompli. Then you sort of have to retcon it into being a, an actually an acceptable thing to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think it is one of the many problems of horse race journalism, which I myself often engage in because it's it's kind of like going to mcdonald's it's fun it's, it's fun, fun it's, it's easy yeah, and it's easy. you can write um, it very quickly yeah, if you're writing a longer piece you can it's like football transfer out. journalism isn't yeah. it that's the problem everyone wants to read it because it's it's new and it's constantly exciting um, but there is a problem exactly as you say that you know like that supposed gaffe what she said was half of trump supporters Belong in a like, basket of deplorables. Basket of deplorables. Don't like don't like uh, mixed race marriage. Don't like blacks. Don't like Hispanics. Don't like etc. etc. And the other half are 
having a rubbish time and and feel that we need some form of radical change. I mean, if you well, there was a great Tarnahisi Coates piece that just said most people want, they they think it's very rude to her to have said it. They don't think that it's untrue yeah. because it is. It is. If you look at the polling, there was some crazy amount of people who voting for Trump who actually think that you know slavery should never have ended, right? You yeah. know, or like the South should secede and be allowed. To, I mean, it was just kind of like what? You know, the civil rights movement shouldn't was an, on balance a bad thing. There are definitely, as you say, white supremacists supporting yeah. him. And I think it, yeah, it is. And I think particularly, I mean, less so in America where they don't, I think they have less excuse because their broadcasters don't have to be balanced. I don't think that our press here covered itself in glory in the way it covered the referendum. It covered it as if it was a family tiff within the Conservative Party. Brexit in reality is going to be our national project uh, in, in England and Wales. And it didn't solve it the false equivalence, right? It did definitely did not, which is exactly what's happening. I saw a great tweet that said, you know, yes, Trump wants to ban Muslims from America, but... But Hillary used her work email at home. And that's been, the, you know, the questions over the Clinton Foundation. You know, actually, no one has managed to stand up. A, yeah, OK, yeah. there are there are potential conflicts of interest if, if you meet donors who then... But, but they have all been declared, whereas Trump's money is largely unexplored. He still yeah. won't release his tax returns. And it's this sort of bizarre search to find things. Because you've said really horrible things about Trump, the search to find some horrible things to say about Hillary so that you can go... Uh, of course, we're actually completely neutral, yeah? Yeah, and I think it, it is uh, deeply troubling. Um, my instinct, though, is that it will touch wood be fine in the States, uh, unlike Brexit, where we still, I think, have not yet... I think most people are still not covering it with the seriousness it... it no, I think there's been a big rush of, of, of boosterism afterwards to say, well, the economy's doing all right at the moment, therefore Brexit is fine. And actually, that you know, that... Uh, to criticise, I guess, our side, there were things like the punishment budget, like Osborne's 4,300. You know, there were things that were sort of plucked out of the air and it's kind of apocalyptic doom and gloom because it was deemed too complicated to make a case of there will be slower growth for years on end. It's just not, you know, it's yeah. not project fear. So I think that's been the problem. But I think anybody who's sort of crowing about how brilliant things are should remember that we haven't we haven't left the European Union yet. We haven't stopped any of our, you know, we haven't left the single market. All our tariffs and trade agreements are all exactly as they were on June the 22nd. And we have no idea what the negotiating position of what is ultimately 27 different countries with 27 different electorates, with 27 different sets of priorities, with 27 different feelings about this referendum. With 27 lack of interest in Britain's prosperity, right? Yeah, That's the yeah. thing. That they care no less that Britain gets a great deal than we care than, you know, the Hungary's doing well at the moment. Yeah, and I was talking to someone from a, a large multinational business about Philip Hammond's idea um, that, you know, you might be able to um, get business in Europe to lobby them. And they said, well, that's a great idea. It should work in theory. Of course, we had business lobbying not to have a European referendum and not to leave the European Union. So we've seen how effective that is. And yeah, I, you know, I mean, if Trump wins, the US media will have questions to answer, which will be on a well, they'll be answering scarier... them from a, from a camp that he will have put them in, yeah. right? Because he is explicitly running against the media. He's banned media from his events. He puts them in pens where they can get, you know, so yeah. his supporters like has bits during his events where everyone can turn and kind of do the two minute hate at journalists. Yeah. It is not, you know, these are turkeys who are writing fair and balanced things about Christmas. Yeah, it's true. I mean, at least to be fair to our nations media fairly rubbish coverage of brexit at least actually brexit is not going to be that bad for you know for journalists, for journalists. well there's a happy thought on. 
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. What does it take to move the needle on the world's toughest problems? On Better Heroes, we've sourced the globe for passionate individuals and visionary companies who are all on a mission to solve humanity's most urgent challenges. Like, can AI make the world a better place? How can we change our consumption habits to better serve the environment? And what can we do to make our financial systems work for all? This series will convince you that humanity can save itself and our planet. Better Heroes is by EY and produced by Human Group Media. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.